God has loved us and shown us grace. And so it was a great first three chapters to go through. Um, it breaks up pretty evenly. The book breaks up pretty evenly uh, in that the first um, three chapters are all about the gospel. The last three chapters are a lot about the implications of how we're to live life based upon that. So we're actually taking a break from the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 through 6, those chapters, in about six weeks. And we're going to be jumping into a little series um, that's beginning today. The little series we're beginning today is called Thrive. And uh, the reason that we're calling this series Thrive is because um, all of us really want to know what is required or what would it take for me to thrive as a human being. I would argue that the vast majority of us in this room, um, whether we're consciously trying to answer that question or not, that we're trying to live um, in such a way so that we really thrive, in such a way that we become fully human. And part of the reason we're preaching a sermon series on it is because if God created us, human beings, if he created the world, then surely God has a lot to say about what would take uh, or what would it take for human beings to thrive. Now, the four different or the five different topics are going to be on this next screen right here, and this is sort of the sub you know, title. And so it's, it's going to be thrive, slow down, go long, give up, look deep, and love well. Uh, some of those things are intuitive. But some of those things, like so many other things in Christianity, uh, are less than intuitive. Um, We're going to be breaking into those things over the course of the next five weeks, so we'd love to have you join in for those today. We'll be talking about the first. Uh, But before we do that, let me take a moment and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you uh, that your son Jesus modeled um, what it is, uh, what it would be, what it would look like uh, to thrive as human beings. Father, I thank you that your word doesn't leave us in the dark, um, not only about who you are, uh, but about who we are, how you created us to live life. And so, Father, since you're the author of um, humanity and reality and ontology, I pray, Father, that uh, that we would turn our lives over to you, that we would trust in you, um, and that in trusting in you, that you would enable us to be fully human, that you would enable us to thrive. And so, Father, we pray all of these things this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Thank you, David. I bet you money that later today people are going to be humming, feeling groovy by Simon and Garfunkel. Come on. 
<clears throat> I actually looked for a Garfunkel wig I could wear up here, but couldn't find one anywhere. So um, you heard the first line of that song, um, and it's slow down, you're moving too fast. What's interesting is uh, what Simon and Garfunkel were writing that song in opposition to was the pace of life in 1967, right? I mean, just think about it. Pre-cell phone, pre-Netflix, pre-Spotify, pre-pop, I mean, all that stuff, right? I mean, what, in the, what was making life go fast in 1967? Our pace of life has got to be faster now than it was then, surely, right? And yet they were saying, hey, slow down. You guys are moving too fast. And the truth is, um, as fast as they were moving in 1967, we're moving five times faster today. Uh, we haven't slowed down at all. We're just moving faster and faster. It's interesting, um, around uh, the turn of the century, the 20th century, um, as automation was beginning and industrialization was in full swing, uh, there were all sorts of social scientists who were predicting that the work week was going to drop from, you know, at that time, 50 hours a week all the way down to 15 hours a week, that people were going to work three hours a day. And in this modernistic environment, uh, you know, of the early 20th century, what the social scientists were saying is that people are going to spend all that extra, extra leisure time engaging in things that are good for them, engaging in things that make them more fully human. It was so interesting to read some of these articles. And of course, what has happened is exactly the opposite. We haven't slowed down. If anything, the pace of, uh, at which we lead life now has sped up. And what's interesting is all the research now from these social scientists are that the speeding up of life, the pace of life, has very serious relational, psychological, physiological damage and consequences on our health. And as a result, we're, we're actually less human as a result. There's a book that was written by a, a woman named Bridget Schulte. And uh, she's the director of uh, a think tank called the Better Life Lab at, the New, at New America, which is this think tank. And she's the author of this book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play, When No One Has Time. She's taking on this whole idea of living our lives in this fast, fast-paced world where nobody slows down. Here's a quote I'm going to read. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen. Somewhere around the end of the 20th century, busyness became not just a way of life, but a badge of honor, right? How many times have we said, oh, I'm so busy, right? And life, sociologists say, became an exhausting everyday thon People now tell pollsters that they're too busy to register to vote, too busy to date, too busy to make friends outside the office, too busy to take a vacation, too busy to sleep, too busy to have relationships. As for multitasking, one 2012 survey found that 38 million Americans shop on their smartphones while sitting on the toilet. If that's you, raise your hand. Just kidding. No hand raising, please. Another found that the compulsion to multitask was actually making us as stupid as if we were stoned. In other words, the impact of our long-term exposure to all this multitasking had the same um, results as if you smoked marijuana too much, right? I mean, it's amazing what multitasking and constantly staying busy is actually doing to our brains. She goes on to say this, even as neuroscience is beginning to show that at our most idle, our brains are most open to inspiration and creativity. And history proves that great works of art, philosophy, and invention were created during leisure time. Despite all of this, though, we resist slowing down, right? You know it's true, right? We resist it. She goes on to say, work has become central in our lives, answering the religious questions of who are you and how do you find meaning and purpose in your life. In other words, being busy becomes really the answer to a religious 
question. Then Honeycutt, one of the few leisure or rest scholars in America, tells uh, Miss Schulte, leisure has been trivialized, or rest has been trivialized, something only silly people want, to have time to shop and gossip. Resting or leisure time somehow just feels wrong, right? Think about it for a second. Sometimes resting just feels wrong, doesn't it? I mean, just think about that for a second in your own lives. How often do you feel guilty about resting, right? When you do end up resting, how often do you feel like you just can't do it? You have to stop and do something else. But what's interesting is that throughout Scripture, the very beginning, all the way through the very end, God gives us any number of different invitations and commandments to slow down and to rest, right? But this slowing down and resting, it's not predicated on some stoic principle that everything will work out in the end, right? That's not what it's predicated upon. It's not predicated on a sort of a self-help doctrine or principle uh, that says that we'll benefit psychologically and emotionally if we slow down, although that's true. Rather, in Scripture, we're invited, even commanded to slow down because our God and our Heavenly Father is in control, right? He's sovereign. And not only is He sovereign, but He loves his children, right? Listen to the words of Psalm 46. This is David. Now, if you listen to these words as I'm reading them, you'll see that everything's coming apart, right? Everything's falling apart. If there was ever a time to sort of get busy and to skip rest, it's when everything's sort of going to pot, and yet listen to the words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, selah. This word selah has any number of different meanings, but one of the meanings is to pause, slow down, right? But it's exactly the wrong time to slow down, isn't it? He goes on to say, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Pause. Slow down. Come behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Not just slow down, but be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah, slow down. So the question is, how does God equip us to slow down? How does he empower us to slow down? How does he command us to slow down? Right? One of the things that we know, we know that when we pray, we slow down, right? I don't know about any of you guys in this room, but praying is so hard for me because there's so much to be done. My task list just keeps getting longer and longer, and longer, and the dishes are piling up in the sink, right? And this, all this other stuff needs to be happening. And to pray requires this slowing down, this ceasing, right? It, it, 
It means taking our hands off of the wheel and trusting God, right? But he commands us to pray. We see Jesus doing it. When we fast, we do the same. We relinquish control of our lives for a moment, and we offer our hearts and our lives back to God, right? When we meditate, they're actually psalms that are written precisely for the purpose of helping us meditate. When we meditate, we don't lose ourselves or push back all of the immediate concerns of life, but rather we take those concerns and those anxieties and we make room to think and to hear God's voice. There are any number of ways in which God commands us and invites us to slow down. The one we're going to talk about primarily today, however, is the Sabbath and how God invites us to slow down in the Sabbath. When Jesus uh, was confronted on the Sabbath by the Pharisees, he said this. He says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, part of what Jesus is saying is the Sabbath is actually for you, right? It actually is for the purpose of, again, helping you thrive, making you more fully human. And I'm not going to sort of enter into a huge discussion about the Sabbath today. I'm not going to get into all the particulars, but very quickly I'll say two very fast things before I jump into the rest of the service or the sermon. The Sabbath is primarily about ceasing from your labor, right? So we see at the very beginning that God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day he sits back and he rests and he, he enjoys the creation that he has made. And so on the Sabbath, the primary function of the Sabbath is a day of rest, a day to sit back and to take it easy and to enjoy the world that God has created. Tim Keller interprets the Sabbath actually as a 24-hour period of time. Now, he goes on to say that he doesn't think it needs to be Saturday or needs to be Sunday, but he does think that it needs to be a 24-hour chunk of time that's, that's really celebrated and, uh, and experienced as a, a chunk of time together devoted to rest, to recreation, and to worship. Okay, rest, recreation, and worship, and if possible, a 24-hour period of time. Now, I'm saying that, and some of you in this room are going, that's not, that's not even possible. Like, I don't know how that's going to happen. I got kids, you know. And the answer to that question is, I have no idea either. So anyway, we'll talk afterwards. Let me jump in very quickly and talk about three implications of the Sabbath. The first one is this, is that when we slow down on the Sabbath, we're reminded that God is at work. When we slow down on the Sabbath, we're reminded that God is at work. Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, the um, paraphrase of the Bible, has this to say, Sabbath is that uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves from our own activities enough to see what God is doing. Part of what happens when we slow down on the Sabbath, when we slow down, is we are reminded that God is at work in the universe. We see that he's busy, that he's still active in the world in which we live, and we can actually gain some perspective by seeing what he's doing. Wendell Berry, um, author of sort of this agrarian life and community, says this, Sabbath observance invites us to stop. It invites us to rest. It asks, asks us to notice that while we rest, the world continues without our help. It invites us to delight in the world's beauty and abundance, right? And both of these quotes point out that God is at work in the world, and that very often what happens is when we don't slow down to celebrate the Sabbath, we miss out on what he's doing and what he's done because we're so furiously busy, right? We miss out. When we slow down and Sabbath, we gain perspective. We remember that our work is predicated upon 
God's work. We recognize that God is the one who works in the hearts and in the lives of those that we love the most, right? And that only He can draw them to Himself. Only He can draw them into full humanity. Our husbands, our wives, our children, our friends. When we Sabbath, we are struck by how much God has done for us that we could never, ever have done for ourselves despite all of our efforts. Does that make sense? We, we furiously work and strive and toil and do all of this, and all the while God is there offering to do our work for us, right? Our work is predicated upon His work. In the last six weeks or so, we had a car get totaled. Um, the 2000 Camry is no more. So for any of you who saw the Camry and knew the Camry and maybe were a little bit envious of me for having the Camry, um, it's now in a junkyard somewhere. Um, it got crushed by another car. Fortunately, it wasn't our fault. Nobody got hurt. Uh, but uh, as soon as it got, you know, totaled, and they told us that, I had about two weeks to try to find a car. And I spent, my family could tell you, I spent probably 15 hours online on Craigslist and going to all these other places, and I was looking at, you know, $2,500 car after $2,500 car after $2,500 car, making a huge list of them on the notes section of my computer. And, uh, I mean, I ended up with probably 30 different cars on there, and I was trying to organize a trip down to Atlanta so I could look at as many of these cars as possible, all the while having no idea which of these was just going to be an absolute, you know, clunker and was going to just, you know, cost us more money in the long run. And I was just, I kept telling Chris, I was like, I got to pull the trigger on this thing because I just can't stop. Like, I was obsessing about it all the time. And last week, um, I was working on the sermon. It was on Tuesday. And I came home um, later that day, and I told Krista, I was like, I had a great day today. And, and she, we talked about it a little bit. And uh, I just said, I just felt kind of at peace all day long, and I just felt like God's good, and he's going to take care of me. And, and I said, you know, nothing really changed. You know, I didn't find out anything about the car. You know, there was no sort of awesome sort of like aha moment during the day. I just felt really confident and like God was good, and he's going to take care of us. And it was funny, I'd shot out a Facebook post about the car getting totaled and looking for a car, and uh, Sarah Calloway said, uh, sent me a text and said, hey, by the way, um, you just hold on, don't buy a car, I might have something for you. And later that night, we found out that they had a good family friend whose mother had passed away and uh, left her 2002 Camry with 45,000 miles on it uh, to her son, this good family friend, and uh, when they found out this family friend found out that this pastor from Rome, Georgia, was looking for a car to replace their totaled one. Uh, this fella, Chuck Neal, said, hey, my mom's actually from the Rome area, and she did nothing. The only way she put miles on that car was driving it to church every Sunday for 14 years. She said, I can think of no other person or place that my, wife, my mom would want that car to be. And so he offered the car to us for 2500 bucks. And so it's sitting outside today. Anyway, you'd be envious of me if you want to. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah, buddy. Anyway, the point is, feverishly, obsessively, I was working, 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 never, ever resting, never trusting in God that he would provide us with what we need, needed, and out of the blue, God goes, I've got this, and I've got it way better than you could ever do for yourself, right? The Sabbath is an opportunity for us to remember, oh yeah, God is at work, right? He's at work in the hearts of our children to draw them to himself. He's at work in the heart of my husband. He's at work in the heart of my friends who I long to see come into a relationship with him. He's got it covered, right? God is at work. And we sometimes only see that when we slow down on the Sabbath. And in the Sabbath, God invites you to slow down, slow down. 
The second implication of the Sabbath we're going to look at today is that slowing down on the Sabbath is a declaration of our trust in God, or maybe it's a reminder of our trust in God. So yes, it's about remembering that God is at work, but it's also an invitation to trust in Him more deeply. In Exodus chapter 16, we see sort of um, a second restatement of the Sabbath. Exodus 16, this is after the children of Israel leave Egypt, and we'll jump in at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Again, they're in the wilderness wandering around. The children of Israel complaining, saying, We're going to starve to death out here. What have you done? Right? And God goes, Don't worry. I'm going to provide you with a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And part of what God is saying there is he's saying, look, you're going to rest on the Sabbath, so on the day before, I'm going to give you twice as much as you need and tell the people not to go out on the Sabbath, but just to collect double that portion the day before. Trust me, is what he's saying, right? He's inviting them to trust him. Verse 27, what do they do? On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. In other words, they didn't trust him. They didn't actually trust that he would provide for them. They didn't actually trust that he would give them everything they needed and more. And so they went out, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Rest, slow down. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. In other words, trust me. Slow down and trust me. So hard to do, right? When, uh, when I was um, in high school, I was not only a lifeguard, but I was a, a swimming instructor. And, uh, and so I would teach everything from little bitty water babies up to adults how to swim. And uh, one of the first things you do as a swim instructor is you teach people to float because you basically teach them, hey, even if you fall in the pool and you can't swim yet, most people can float, right? And, and so one of the things that I would do is I would take these people and I would say, okay, lay flat on your back, stick your chin in the air and your belly button in the air. Your arms need to be out and you need to just be relaxed, right? And you need to trust me, right? If you do this and you hold this form, just sort of laying back, you'll float. And uh, I would initially have my hands underneath them so I could feel my hands underneath their back. And, I, and then I would tell them, I'm going to take my hands away, but my hands are still going to be under you. You're just not going to feel them. And, uh, and you just need to trust me that if your chin is up and your belly button's up toward the sky, you're going to float. As soon as I would remove my hands, what would happen? Almost everybody, almost every time, would immediately start flailing around in the water, right? Trying to save themselves because they did not trust me, right? There's a, a quote by a woman named Susan Wonderink of Christianity Today, who, uh, and I'll just read this very quickly. She says this, Faith is about a posture of rest, Many of us are terrified by the life of faith, by simply letting go, right, and floating and resting, needing always to feel the support of steady jobs, steady relationships, and backup plans. God, knowing that, signed us up for swim lessons. The swim lessons are the Sabbaths. In other words, it's very much on the Sabbath that you answer the question, do I trust God? Chick-fil-A has answered yes, and clearly he has supported them, right? Not only that, but our own Swift and Finch across the street, it says yes, and God is supporting 
them? Do we trust him enough to simply lay back and to rest? If we're honest, yeah, I like that, don't you? Anyway, that's good. I found that online. I just thought it fit. If we're honest, many, if not most of us, are utterly addicted to control, right? Most of us are addicted to control. We seek to control relationships by being nice or by being domineering. Our goal is to avoid being hurt. We seek to control our diet and our exercise, building a fortress against a chaotic world filled with chaotic people. Again, our goal is to avoid being hurt or feeling powerless. We seek to control our children, our spouses, our friends, our bodies, our schedules, our grades, our work. By the way, all those things are good things. I'm not saying those are bad things. But all the while, the unspoken message of our hearts is that we cannot trust God, right? There's no way I can trust God with those areas of my life. I've got to take control. I've got to trust myself. Sabbath is an opportunity and an invitation to trust God with every area of our hearts and every area of our lives. In the Sabbath, God invites you to slow down. You're moving too fast. Third implication of the Sabbath. Slowing down on the Sabbath reminds us that God is at work, reminds us to trust in God, but also reminds us of our freedom from slavery, our freedom from addiction. Verse 12 um, of Deuteronomy 5 says this, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, right? You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to death. You were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is a reminder that we've been set free, right? It's a reminder that we were in slavery not only in Egypt, but we were in slavery to sin. We were in slavery to the world. We were in slavery to the devil, and we've been set free from God. Here's what Keller, Tim Keller, has to say about this idea of the Sabbath. God liberated his people when they were slaves in Egypt. And in Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15, God ties the Sabbath to freedom from slavery. Anyone who overworks, anyone who overworks is really a slave. Anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave to a need for success, to a materialistic culture, to exploitative employers, to parental expectations, or all of the above. These slave masters will abuse you if you're not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom, right? The Sabbath is a declaration of you being set free. And so the question for you this morning is, are you living like a slave? Are you living like a slave, unable to rest, driven to achieve, to prove, to accomplish on an earthly or maybe a spiritual plane? Are you enslaved by work, by youth soccer, or by other people's expectations? If so, the Sabbath is a God-ordained act of defiance. The Sabbath is a God-ordained act of defiance against the world order. You've always wanted to rebel, but you didn't grow your hair out long right? So celebrate the Sabbath, right? You always wanted to get a tattoo, but you realized later that was a bad idea, 
So celebrate the Sabbath, right? You wanted to get your nose pierced or your ear pierced. What, I don't know what it was. You've always wanted an act of defiance. Well, here's your chance. Celebrate the Sabbath against the world order. Rest when everything tells you that's crazy, right? The Sabbath is a God-instituted act of rebellion against your own wisdom, and the Sabbath is an embrace of God's perspective on human thriving, right? It's an act of defiance. It's an act of rebellion. By the way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with piercings. There's absolutely nothing wrong with tattoos, right? It just depends what the content is, right? So while the rest of the world feverishly pursues what 1 Corinthians 3 calls wood, hay, and stubble, all the stuff that's just going to pass away, God invites you to take a nap, to go for a hike, to read a book, to make cinnamon rolls, and to enjoy a leisurely meal with family and friends. God invites you to slow down, right? To slow down. You're moving too fast. Slow down and see that God is at work. Slow down and remember to trust him, right? That he'll take care of you. That he'll do more than you're able to do. The Sabbath, again, is an invitation for us to remember that we've been set free, right? Today, as you look around the room, there are tables with uh, bread and wine and bread and grape juice. This meal that we're preparing to celebrate is called the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. Some people call it communion. But ultimately, what this table of bread and wine represent is that you've been set free, right? That God sent his son in order to rescue you from slavery, right? To set you free so that you don't have to labor to the law any longer, right? And so what I would invite you to do this morning before you receive the Lord's Supper, I would invite you to sit back and to remember that God invites you to rest, to remember that God has done everything that you were originally required to do, and he said, I'll take it. I'll do it for you. David mentioned that this morning as he was leading worship. And so what you get to do is you get to sit at the table of the Lord. You get to sit at the family table, and you get to eat bread and wine and rest in knowing that you and God are good, right? That he sees you as perfect, that he sees you as righteous, that he sees you as not guilty, not because of your work, but because of the work of his son Jesus on your behalf. It's a, it's a reminder to rest, right? You don't have to work anymore. I will say this and qualify this really quickly, that this meal, this family meal, this opportunity to rest is actually not for everybody. It's not for everyone, but it's only for those who trust in Christ alone as their Savior. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then uh, I'll take a moment and pray and invite you to experience the rest the Lord's Supper reminds us of. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, throughout your word, you invite us to rest. I thank you that you remind us that you are our strong tower, that you are our shelter, that you are the rock that we hide beneath. Father, I thank you that you remind us in Genesis chapter 15 um, that the covenant of our forgiveness and righteousness um, was something that we couldn't keep, and so you made the covenant with yourself. 
and kept up the requirements of the law and the requirements of that covenant on our behalf. Father, I thank you um, that even this Lord's Supper today is an invitation to rest in the declaration that we've been adopted as daughters and adopted as sons, and that there's nothing we can do to make, us, make you love us any more or any less than you do right now, simply because we're your children. And so, Father, I pray that we would eat this bread, that we would drink this wine, and that we would rest in the forgiveness that is offered to us through your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.